you have your Bibles, ooh, that's hot. If you have your Bibles, would you open to Matthew chapter 12? We'll be looking at verses 33 through 37. That'll be our scripture for this morning. Matthew chapter 12, the Holy Scriptures read, Either make the tree good, and its fruit good, or make the tree bad, and its fruit bad. But for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we ask again that we would understand your text clearly. Help me to communicate what is intended and what is true. Father, we ask that that in the clarity of truth that is provided today, that you would challenge hearts, not just minds, but our whole being would be examined by this word personally, not for others, not looking around us at seeing who needs this, but looking at our own hearts and recognizing that every single person in this room needs this truth to shine a light on their lives in a way that they have not seen. Help us to see our blind spots. Help us to examine our own faith, to see if it is genuine or if it is demonic faith. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Once upon a time, there was a Russian spy. A Russian spy, I said. A Russian spy who lived in London, where he spied with great spying. This spy was an exceptionally good spy, who managed not only to steal many of the British government's secrets, but worked his way actually into MI6, the British intelligence agency. For years, he worked side by side with British intelligence officers without them ever having a clue that he was actually not their comrade at all. The man was exceptionally good at his work. And in fact, the Russian government would sometimes slip him information, not quite too valuable, things they could could adjust and go without, but they would give him valuable information on Russia to pass along to the British government in order to solidify their trust in this man. The man looked right. The man acted right. The man even talked right, for the most part. However, eventually the British government, they figured out that they had a spy in their midst. They knew it was coming from MI6, and they knew it was coming from one of the high-up officers based upon the level of information that was being passed. But they didn't know who it was. And based upon the level of information that was being leaked, they, they knew it had to be a high-ranking officer within MI6, but there was a problem. When they looked at the list of officers and talked to people who worked around them, nobody stood out. Not a single one of them. All of them were highly decorated and exceptional at their work. They were all greatly trusted. And so they were completely in the dark on who this spy might be. But then a linguist, if you know what that is, it's somebody who studies multiple languages and kind of knows the nuances and the ins and outs of them, who was a consultant for the British government, suggested that they try something different. 
They suggested that they bring in professionally trained linguists along with psychologists to work through questions that might show a positive result on somebody who was trying to hide something, try to find something that would stand out. See, the thought was that every culture has different mannerisms and different expressions that are actually unique to that specific culture. So if one of those pop up, that lets you know something's not right here. See, as Minnesotans, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? We have all sorts of expressions that are unique to Minnesota, uh, like, oofta, don't you want to go on the boat up north? I'll bring a hot dish and some pop to drink. It'll be a great time. We'll play some duck, duck, gray duck. It's goose, you psychopaths. Anyways, so with this thinking in mind, they began interviewing all of the officers to try to see if something like that would stand out. And they would be like, boom, got it. However, after officer after officer was interviewed, they didn't catch a single thing, and they were about to give up. But no, the linguist and the psychologist said, no, let's keep going. Something will eventually pop up. If we ask the right questions, if we have long enough conversations, we'll find your spy. And so they did it again. Round two continued. And then finally, in that second wave of interviews, they asked one officer, How do you handle conflict with your fellow employees? He paused for a second. He looked at them and he said, you know, I try to de-escalate the situation. I've found that if I do that and I don't overreact, it tends to make the conflict smooth out that much faster. Because if we don't, we will make an elephant out of a fly. And right there, the British knew they had their man, because every good British citizen knows it's not make an elephant out of a fly, it's make a mountain out of a molehill. And so the spy was arrested, he was tried, and then he was promptly hung for treason. And why? All because of one careless, idle expression, which actually served to reveal the man's true nature. Church, you know, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is telling us the same thing about our expressions, the same thing about our words. They reveal who we truly are. They show deep down who the true you is. Once the mask is taken away, once the facade rolls back, it shows who you truly are. And the thing that's interesting about that is not only does it reveal our true identity, but it leads to the outcome of our judgment when we stand before the Lord on the day of the Lord. You recognize that. You realize that. Because that's what Jesus is telling us. And so if we are to avoid a judgment that is infinitely worse than what this Russian spy came to face, we have to know three things about our words from this text. And here's what they are. Our words reveal our nature. Our words reveal our treasure. And finally, our words reveal our judgment. Look at verses 33 and 34 with me. Either make the tree good, and its fruit good, or make the tree bad, and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, in the first 12 chapters of Matthew, Matthew's been trying to get us to understand one huge main point, and that is what? The identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is this guy? And he is none other than the sovereign messianic king of the universe. And so Matthew is going at great lengths 
to show us he was indeed that. And Jesus did that. That's why Matthew's showing that, because that's who Jesus was. And so for the first part of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus himself makes it loud and clear who his identity is, that he is the messianic king sent by God, who actually we find out is God. And yet what happened? The Jewish people, they rejected him. Instead, they went along with their religious leaders, the Pharisees, who then said, you know what? He casts out demons by the power of demons, by Satan himself. Which, as we saw last week, that was the unpardonable sin. Which was the unique, unforgivable sin that could only take place at that time, which was rejecting Messiah's work as it was manifested and done through the power of the Holy Spirit during Jesus' earthly life and ministry. That's what it is. You can't commit that today. Grace will cover any sin. Praise God for that. And so then in verse 33, Jesus responds to their ridiculous argument of saying that he has a demon or he's of the devil by saying, if I'm evil, explain all these good works I've done. How does that go together? You liked the good works. You liked being healed. You had no problem with me healing the sick, raising the dead, and casting out demons. So what's the deal here? Either the fruit I produce is bad is because I'm bad, or the fruit I produce is good because I am actually good. Pick a horse and ride it, boys. This is, this is the only options here. But they didn't want to pick a horse and ride, did they? They wanted to have their cake and eat it too, which you can't do. You either have to hold your cake or eat it. That's the only options. Yes, they liked his healings, but they weren't a big fan of the other stuff. What other stuff? Keeps coming up. We just looked at this a few weeks ago. The stuff about how Jesus came how? In meekness, not in power. He came to serve not to conquer. He came to save, not destroy. He came not just for the Jewish people, but for all the nations of the world. Boy, they didn't like that last part especially, did they? No, they didn't. Not one bit at all. And why not? Because that was not what they expected Messiah would be. They expected that Messiah was going to be bold, courageous, strong, He would come, and he would conquer, and he would rule and reign. He wouldn't seek and serve people. That's ridiculous. What kind of a king picks up the towel and serves and washes people's feet? It's absurd. And so when Jesus offered them freedom from the slavery of sin, they rejected that. Why? They didn't think they needed to be freed. They didn't think that they were slaves. And why not? They were God's chosen people. They were good. They had their ticket to ride to heaven. They were all set. And so they didn't want a suffering Savior because they didn't think they needed a suffering Savior. Instead, what they thought they needed was a conquering king, which is actually the last thing that they needed for their own personal state. And so because Jesus wasn't the Messiah they expected, he became the Messiah that they neglected. And interestingly enough, Jesus tells us that their response to his nature actually serves to show the true identity of their nature. You realize that? And that's so true. It's no different today. Our response to Christ shows not his nature, but our nature. How we respond to Christ's nature is quite revealing for our own. And it's no different today. Let me ask you, do people today pick and choose the parts about Jesus and the Bible that they like and kind of ignore or dismiss the parts about Jesus that they don't like. Kidding me? Why would you even ask that silly question? Of course they do. We see and hear this all the time. 
we hear things like, do you really think Jesus cares about who we sleep with? Like, come on, like lighten up. God wants us to be happy, doesn't he? Like, what are you talking about? Or we hear things like, sure, Jesus is a good teacher, but you know what, come on, like, that's pretty narrow to say that Jesus is the only path to God. Like, come on, look at all these other religions, look at all these different paths. They do good things. Don't be so narrow-minded. And if you think this kind of thinking doesn't show up within the walls of the church, you are woefully mistaken, because it sadly does. And so it is no different today than it was in Jesus' day because humanity wants God on their terms. We don't want to offer sacrifices as he's determined. We want to go the path of Cain, not Abel. And so when it comes to God's terms or the things that we don't like, we either outright ignore them or we respond in hatred and dismissiveness as the Pharisees did. And this response actually is a spotlight upon your own soul. It shows your real identity. So the question we have to ask is, what is my response? And again, just because you stand here and you say, hey, you know what, this is my response. Let me tell you what it is. And then if you go out and live the opposite of that, which one's your true response? The lip service you paid over here Sunday morning for about an hour or what you did the rest of the week? (laughs) Obvious. Do you ignore the parts about Jesus that you don't like? Maybe you've gone even further than that as the crowds did and you're in the Pharisees' camp where you actually find the teachings of Jesus, some of them at least, to be evil, to be repulsive, to be wrong. I mean, let's be real here. Our culture hates a lot of what Jesus stands for. Maybe they don't fully realize it, but they'll dismiss large chunks of the Bible because it's bigoted, because it's hateful. And so we can have that tendency too if we're not careful. And it's actually interesting if you think about this, because if you look at God's laws as revealed in God's word, and you say, yeah, okay, that one's good, that one's bad, that one's good, that one's bad, i got to ask you a question then. What law then are you judging his law by? Is it just one you made up? Where's it coming from? Which ruler are you using to measure God's law to show that it's not quite what it should be, that it's not the length it ought to be, that it's not as straight as it should be? This is a serious problem for unbelievers. Once you drop God's law, how are you not blown about by every wind of doctrine? How do you determine right from wrong even? And you can't just tell me, oh, we just know it, because guess what? You get 100 people in the room, and everybody's version of just know it is different. So which law do you go by? Not only then, when you drop Christ's standard, God's standard, not only are you left without a moral standard, but you can't even determine good from bad whatsoever. And here's the ironic part. Whatever moral system you come up with that you think is better than Jesus's, you break your own too. I don't care what it is. You write down a list of the things that you think are right and wrong, and then you look at the last six months of your life, you've broken your own laws. We can't even handle ours, let alone God's. And so our response then to Christ's nature, it actually shows our own nature. In one way or the other, whether we're obedient to it, whether we're disobedient and dismissive of it, or we go so far as to say that that moral standard is completely bankrupt. It's wrong. So Christ's nature and our response to it reveals our own. As verse 34 mentions, apart from the saving work of Christ, our regenerate, unregenerate nature, what is that? 
It's quite evil and snake-like. That's why he says, you brood of vipers. That's not a compliment. That's a diss. And he's saying this because apart from regenerate, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, that's exactly what our nature is. It's quite snake-like because it reflects our Father, who is the devil. And if that's our nature, then we too will respond wrongly to Christ. However, if our nature is not snake-like, but God-like, then how will we respond to Christ? It means we won't pick and choose the parts that we want. We're going to follow the whole counsel of God. Yes, imperfectly, we're still sinners. But we will endeavor to live as he's called us to live. Because why? Because that's our true nature now. Because of salvation that's come to us by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, we will now respond to Christ's nature, his laws, his words, with obedience, not disobedience or dismissiveness. So what determines whether we have the right nature or the wrong nature? We kind of touched on already, having the right heart. Or we might say having the right treasure, which leads us to our second point. Look at verse 34 and 35 with me. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. In these verses, Jesus is making a very straightforward and simple point. It's not complicated. He's basically saying our actions flow out of our heart. And if so, consequently, what this means is if our heart is evil, what comes out, church? Evil. If our heart is good, what comes out, church? Good. You'll pass them with flying colors. See, in the Bible, when it speaks of the heart, it's not talking about lovey dovey feelings. Sorry, it's not. It's not what it's referring to. It's a part of it, it relates to it, but that's not what the heart is. It's actually, in the Bible, it's the core of who we are. It's the inner being, the true self. When you pull back the mask, when you stop faking who you are, the real you, that's the heart. It's the whole man. And so the point here is that our response to Jesus is a spotlight on our hearts. It shows what's in there. It shows the real us, the real you. And so the point here is that our response to Jesus shows that. It shows our affections, we might say, or shows the treasure of our heart. See, every single one of us has something or someone that is the ultimate treasure of our heart. We all do. We have someone or something that sits upon the throne of our heart that makes us say, you know what, if I have that, then my life is good. And if I don't, it's miserable. We all have something that we're living for to find happiness to find joy, to find contentment. Whatever that thing is, that's the treasure of your heart. For some of you, it's your spouse. You've made your spouse the treasure of your heart. And because you've done so, I'll just say it, you're a coward with them. You won't speak truth because your spouse is the treasure of your heart and you are terrified of having a frown come from their face upon you. So you won't speak hard truths. And so what do you do? You walk on eggshells around them. You treat them with kids' gloves because you don't want to upset the treasure of your heart. And why not? Because if there's strife in that relationship with them, it's not just a little problem, it's a big problem. 
It turns to make an elephant out of a fly, we might say. And why? All to appease your comrade over there. That's what we do. It doesn't just have to be your spouse. It can be your kids. It can be your boss. It can be your peers. Whatever. Because deep down, the treasure of your heart in this situation, it's the nodding approval of others. That's what you have based the treasure of your heart upon. Now, at the same time, even if you're not a coward towards those relationships, that doesn't prove that you haven't made relationships your ultimate treasure, does it? It doesn't. In fact, depending upon your personality, you might be the kind of person who responds by blowing a gasket when those relationships don't go how you want, when that special person displeases you or falls short of showing you the love and respect that you believe you deserve. And you do this because you're treasuring the wrong treasure. If you treasure the wrong treasure, biblically, you know what that means you are. It means you're an idolater. You're a worshiper of false gods. And God does not sit lightly upon that sin, does he? No, it's a very serious thing. When you treasure something, it means you find your self-worth, it means you find your happiness, it means you find your contentment in whatever that thing is. It can be fishing, it can be relationships, it can be your career, it can be your hobbies, whatever. You get the idea. It can be anything and everything that's not God. And see, this is a huge problem for us. Like, this isn't just religious preaching stuff. Like This actually hits your life and affects the way you live. It actually affects your happiness and your joy and your misery. And why? Because you were created to treasure God. That's what you were made for. And so if you don't treasure God, and that's not the thing that makes you woohoo happy in the morning, that makes you believe life is worth living, you're going to be miserable. You're always going to be disappointed. Because none of these other lesser gods can hold up. That's why idolatry leads to misery. It does. Now do you see why the Bible tells us so many times to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength? This is not just an arbitrary command by a narcissistic God who's like, I want it all about me. No, the reality is you were created for him. And you flourish when that relationship is supreme, when God is the treasure of your heart. God doesn't command us to do this because he's a killjoy. He does so because God is the fuel that the human machine runs on. And so if you're treasuring the wrong things, it's because your heart is treasuring bad things because your heart is bad, which results in a bad nature and bad works. That's the way this works here. So now do you see why religion is such a fool's game? It is. It's a fool's game because you can't fix the problem by trying to dress things up. I don't care how much lipstick, blush, and cover-up you put on a dead corpse, that thing's still going to rot and stink, isn't it? And that's what we're trying to do when we pick up religion without that changed nature, without that changed heart. So what must we do? Instead, we must go to God, submit ourselves to his rule and reign, and go under the divine knife of the great cosmic surgeon, the great cosmic heart surgeon, who does what? Replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, which is the only thing 
that can lead to a changed nature that properly responds to Christ's nature. Some of you think, or maybe you just don't realize, that you can't do both. Okay? It's one or the other. These are the only two options. You can't sort of treasure God and then sort of treasure other stuff. It's either or here. It's not 50-50. It's not even 51-49. Like, oh, if I make God the majority, then I'm okay. No, it's 100%, 0%. That's it. It's all or nothing. And why? Because the throne room of your heart seats one person, not two. You never see a king sitting side by side with another king on his throne. That's weird. Nobody does that. There's not even room for him. And so if you think you can serve God on Sunday mornings and then serve your career on weekdays, fishing on Saturdays, or whatever hobby or whatever person, you are sorely mistaken. Matthew 6, 24, here's what Jesus says about this. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And maybe you think, oh, well, it's not money I care about. It's my job. I'm okay. No, money can be substituted with any false idol, any thing that's not God. The unregenerate heart isn't picky. It will try to run on the most worthless of fuels. But it's not going to run very well or very long. So we must then treasure the only one whom our hearts were meant to run on. So here's the question. How do we know what we're actually treasuring? Oh, I treasure God. See, I'm good. That's that simple? (laughs) No. If I tell you that I treasure the Vikings, but I never watch any of their games, which I don't, uh, I don't know who any of the players are, which I don't, and I actively root for the Packers, which I would rather die than do, am I really a Vikings fan? No, not at all. Not even a little bit. I'm not a Vikings fan. I'm not treasuring them in any way, shape, or form, even if I give lip service to saying that I do. To make matters worse here, when it comes to our hearts, the Bible tells us that our hearts are deceitfully wicked, and it's going to try to trick us into thinking that we're treasuring God when we're not. Because we're idol worshipers at heart. That's the default position of the human heart. And even for the regenerate heart, we can slip back into that quite easily, can't we? So then how do we know? How do we know what the true treasure of our heart is? Look at verse 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What does that mean, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks? It means that even though the words originate from our mouths, they come out with our tongues, That's not where they start. Where do they start? In the heart. They start here, and out they come. So according to Jesus, you want to know the kind of heart you have, what do you got to look at? Your words. What you say. Your actions. Not just a quick, oh, lip service, yep, that's that's the treasure of my heart. And then 99% of everything you say conflicts with that drastically. You look at the whole to determine what's down there. So we have to ask ourselves some hard questions. Are your words harsh? Are they judgmental? Are they blunt? Or would people say, you know, that person is full of gracious gracious speech. They're merciful and full of kind words. Are your words full of foul language, anger, 
or perverse talk. Or you speak words that are pure peacemaking and building up of others. Shameless plug for our Sunday school class. The Bible is full of warnings about the tongue. And it's not just telling us, hey, you know what? The problem is saying bad things, and the solution is saying more good things, so just do that and you'll be fine. That's not the point. Rather, it warns us to pay attention to our words because the words that we spew from our mouth are the best indicator of what's down actually inside of our heart. It's a more solid indicator than whatever we might profess to believe in. The words are an indicator. Jesus' half-brother James, if you were here with us through our study through James, all this is giving you major deja vu. But here's what James says. Some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Same type of concept here, isn't it? Speech is kind of a work, right? Of course it is. It is. And so just saying you have faith doesn't prove a single thing. It really doesn't. Not at all. I don't care how feely the feely feeling was when you said that prayer that one time when you were seven. That's not the indicator of what's in your heart. And why? Because faith without works is what? It's dead. It doesn't say weak. It doesn't say struggling. It doesn't say on life support or in need of improvement. It says dead. Dead as a doornail. It is non-existent. And if your faith is non-existent, that means it's dead. And if it's dead, then so too are you spiritually dead. And if you're spiritually dead, you are awaiting the judgment from God where he will condemn you in your trespasses and sins. Is it any wonder then why the Bible tells us more than once that it's by their fruit that you will know them? You will know who is the the sons and daughters of God. And you know, I think it says that over and over because by their fruit we'll know who is. See that logic there? That's That's a conclusion I drew there. That's pretty good, right? It's pretty straightforward stuff. Like, it's not like some mystery poetic thing where it's like, oh, well, it says this. I wonder what it really means. No, it's, it's straightforward. By your fruit, by your words, by your deeds, you can look and see the nature of what you're truly, is truly going on in your heart. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 7. We looked at this a long while back. Uh, verse 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? No. Are figs from thistles? No. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree, then, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, this is a key word, you will recognize them by their fruits. These these false prophets were going around, had lots of probably nice talk. But ultimately, you examine their whole speech, everything about them, their deeds. They were ravenous wolves. They were not of God. And so make no mistake about this church. Your word and your works are the absolute best indicator for finding out what's truly going on in your heart. Your word and works can't change your heart. Right? That's legalism. That's being saved by works. We don't believe in that. But they indicate what kind of heart you truly have. 
A prayer you said when you were seven doesn't cut it. Your church attendance won't show it. Nor your zeal for theological purity and discussion. Nor even your Bible reading. For out of abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That which comes from within the heart. So the question here I have for you is, what kind of heart do you have? And may I strongly suggest something. Don't ask your biased self that question. Go ask another Christian. And I would also highly recommend one outside of your home. Go ask them how your heart's doing, what they see coming out from your heart. And we need to do this because our hearts are deceitfully wicked and they blind us from the truth about ourselves. We all have blind spots. And you say, well, I don't have any blind spots. I haven't seen any in my life. Well, that's why they call them blind spots. You don't know they're there. That's why you need somebody else. And your spouse isn't, I mean, they're a good person to help with this, but they're not the only one you better have in your life because you both will become biased together. What if you both have the same blind spot? Good luck there. And so instead of asking our own biased hearts, ask other Christians. Ask them, what kind of heart do you see within me based upon the words I say as a whole, not just here and there, but in totality, in my interactions with people, when they spill their coffee on me, when they don't do what they promised that they would do. How do I respond to them? Is it gracious or is it ungracious? Some of you don't want to do that, do you? It's difficult, isn't it? But you better. You better do it, and here's why. Because not only do our words reveal our nature, not only do our words reveal our treasure, but our words reveal our judgment. This is important stuff. Look at verse 36 and 37. Jesus says this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Oh my, oh my, oh my. 15 minutes to tackle this. All right. Here you thought we might be just about done with this uncomfortable cardiological exam this morning. Not quite. What does Jesus start this sentence with? I tell you. Right? That's the very first start. I tell you. And this is his way of saying, listen up. I'm warning you. You better hear what I'm about to say. And what he tells us is definitely, I think, in the top list of hardest sayings that Jesus throws out, isn't it? Every idle word, like, really? Like, I'm going to be judged by that on the day of judgment? Whew. Jesus is saying that on the day of judgment, it's not just the bad things we've said that will condemn us, though they will. It's not just the mean things that we've said that will condemn us, though they will. It's not just the perverse things that we have said that will condemn us, though they will. No, even our idle words will rise up as a testimony of our judgment. That's a big yikes. What does that mean, our idle words? It means our empty or thoughtless words, our carefree words. And what it's really getting at is words that are useless. And all of these, this is going to stand against us on the day of judgment. It will stand as evidence to condemn us or vindicate us on that day. And why? 
I can think of two reasons. First off, Colossians 3.17 gives us a little hint on this. There we go. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. Whatever you do, in word or deed. Our words matter to God, church, more deeply and profoundly than we can possibly fathom. And really, should this come at any surprise to us? I mean, after all, we're talking about the God who spoke the universe into existence, who happens to care about the power of our words. Of course he cares about words. Of course he does. And so we must never forget the power of our words and how they serve to reveal what is truly within our hearts. For even our idle words reveal so much more about us than we ever dared to imagine. They really do. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry I said that to you. That was, that was, that was harsh. That was rude. That was, I don't know why I did that. That was so out of character. I, you know, I don't know. No, it wasn't character. It was a revelation of what's in your heart, and it slipped out. You acted very much in character. And if you ignore that warning sign, it is potentially at your great peril. James 1.26 says this, Those who consider themselves religious, and I think he's using this in a kind of a derogatory term, but whatever, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves. And their religion is what? Worthless. Useless. Nothing at all. And if our religion is worthless, then one day soon we will stand condemned before a holy God as he condemns us and rejects us and casts us into an eternal hell. This day is coming. The day is coming where God will judge the secrets of men. In our words, our revelation to us now, what that judgment outcome will be. Revelation 20.12, there's so many verses I could show you. I'm just going to show you a few here. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what is written in the book, according to what? What they had done. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we, we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, this is believers, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And finally, Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So how do we get ready for this day? Just buckle down, make sure we got more good words than bad words? We make sure our words are good enough that we got more good ones, not too many bad ones? Is that really what it's getting at here, church? No. Good luck with that. That's like asking for a miracle. Speaking of hoping for a miracle, in the passage we're going to look at next week, the religious leaders ask for just that. They ask Jesus, they say, Show us a sign, show us a miracle in which Jesus condemns them, saying, No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so too will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And what's that talking about? It's talking about Christ's miraculous death and resurrection. And yet, 
even when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and all the people, they were given this incredible sign, was that enough for them? No. It wasn't. And why? Because they had the same old evil heart beaten within them. And so it didn't matter what miraculous sign they were given, they were going to reject. Because rejection was their true nature. Hatred of God was their true nature. And so, and so instead of asking for a miraculous sign, they should have been asking for a miraculous new heart. Which is actually the only way for our word and works to pass with approval on the day of judgment. That's it. That's the only option. And this isn't because of our goodness, but because of Christ's perfect goodness. For Christ's perfect works and word showed what? They showed his perfect and holy nature. And actually, by comparison, shows us how much more so we even fall short. Christ's perfect works and word, they also revealed Christ's treasure. And what and whom did Christ treasure? Father. Perfectly. He treasured God and God alone. And despite all of this, it led not to him being justified, but to him being condemned in judgment. And because he did, that is the only reason you and I can receive these new hearts. It's not because we do more good works than bad works, more good, nice sayings than mean, angry sayings. It's simply because Christ lived the life we never could, he died the death we deserved, and he rose victoriously from the grave so that we might too. So here's the question. What heart do you have? Or maybe I should ask, what, what are the words you're saying revealing about the heart that you have? Has faith in Christ led to good words and works in your life? Yes, imperfectly. Of course, imperfectly. Of course, we still sin. But, nevertheless, have you seen the radical, life-changing, miraculous grace of God at work in your heart, changing you to produce good word and works because of that changed heart? If not, don't ignore this text. Take it seriously. Turn to the power, which is the only power strong enough to tame the tongue. Your self-will isn't strong enough to tame your tongue. So you must turn to the one power, which is Christ Jesus, which is God himself, the all-powerful God, who can tame our tongues because he's changed our hearts, and that is the only way that we can go forward in life, not spewing out cursings, but blessings, to quote James. I'll leave you with this verse, Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. May we be a church that by the grace and power of God spews forth blessings and praise from our mouths, not cursings and bitter hatred towards one another. Father, I thank you for this text. And Lord, I just ask that this would not have fallen upon deaf ears today that every person here would be challenged by what they see in your word. Father, we just ask that affections would change as we behold our Savior 
who loved us enough to die for us so that we might one day be with you. Father, we know we are imperfect. We know that despite even those of us with changed hearts, that we go back to our old nature sometimes. So we praise you that our eternal destiny does not reside on our works, but Christ's work, the one who paid it all. All to him I owe. So Lord, help us to strike the balance with this truth where we neither ignore its warnings, but also not fall back into works-based righteousness, where there is no righteousness apart from Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name.